Well, good morning. It is a blessing to be back with you. Some of you may not have known that I was gone, but I was in Denver for the last few weeks, last few Sundays we missed, um, and it was just wonderful to be back with my family, um, back in the Rocky Mountains, uh, spending some time with some relatives. It was uh, almost any given day that you could see a gaggle of cousins running around in the, my parents' backyard in various arrays of uh, Spider-Man and Nerf guns and lightsabers, and uh, they were in trees and under trees and digging in the dirt, and it was just an awesome time for them and for our family. Um, but it also proved to be just a really fruitful time for me to step back from my weekly ministry demands and uh, take a look at the bigger picture of what the Lord has called me to do here at Grace Church, um, in particular in relation to my role as pastor of global and local outreach, um, one that I began a little over a year ago. And studying for this, today, uh, this passage, today's message um, has been a significant part in that. And so I'm honored and eager to have the chance to preach this morning out of Acts chapter 12, verse 25 to 13, 3. And we can turn to that passage now. You can find it in the Pew Bible on page 921. Acts chapter 12, beginning with that very last verse, verse 25, and into chapter 13. There we read, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose name, whose other name, was Mark. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Well, you will notice already that our passage this morning is quite short compared to the other sections that we've covered this far. It may even seem like we've cut it off a bit early if you were to go on and keep reading, you might ask, why stop at verse 3? And the reason is that this passage marks a monumental step in Luke's retelling of the spread of the gospel. It is a watershed moment in the life of the early church. It is the birth of the missionary movement. And as such, what happens in these few verses has much to teach us about how we as a church are to engage in the mission of God to bring people from every nation, from the ends of the earth, into his kingdom. Recall with me the words of Acts 1-8, the theme of this book that Luke has written for us, where Jesus says to his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The entirety of the book of Acts is Luke's record of how these words of Jesus are being fulfilled. Thus we see in the first seven chapters of Acts the spread of the gospel first to the city of Jerusalem, through the pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon the disciples. And Peter's sermon at Pentecost and the healing of a lame beggar at the hands of Peter and John. 
through the faithful teaching and preaching of the disciples in the temple and from door to door, and the daily adding of souls to the church numbering in the thousands, not to mention the ministry, testimony, and martyrdom of Stephen. Then in Acts chapter 8, we begin to see the second stage of Jesus' words being fulfilled as Christ is proclaimed in the region of Samaria and Judea, with Philip and Peter and John all going to Samaria with the gospel, with Cornelius coming to Christ in the city of Caesarea in this region of Judea, and this message of Christ reaching the surrounding regions becoming established even in the Gentile city of Antioch. And now, beginning in chapter 13 of Acts, we see the fulfillment of the third and final stage of Jesus' words beginning to take place with the gospel beginning to go out to the ends of the earth. And it's here that I would like us to pause and to consider a question, a question we ought to have in our minds as we begin to study this passage, a question that ought to burn in our hearts as disciples of Jesus Christ, a question that is Uh, in the title of our message. The question is, how is the gospel going to get to the ends of the earth? How is it going to happen? Stepping back for a moment from the context of the early church and looking at history, it's clear to see that this is a question that has been answered over the centuries in many different ways, to greater or lesser effect sometimes leading to the establishment of healthy churches and at other times leading to a greater suspicion of the gospel and hesitancy to follow Christ. It is one whose answer can differ from church to church, from century to century, from pastor to pastor, from missionary to missionary, and it is a question that we oftentimes are still trying to find the answer to today. Let's name a few ways that one might answer the question how will the gospel get to the ends of the earth uh, in these, just these past few centuries? How have we been answering that question? Well, we might say the gospel will spread far and wide to the ends of the earth as the Lord raises up powerful evangelists, the likes of Billy Graham, who traveled the world speaking to tens of thousands of people at a time. Or we might say that the gospel will go to the nations as the Lord raises up frontier missionaries, missionaries who are willing to take the gospel deep into the heart of countries that are unreached, like Hudson Taylor or William Carey. Or we may look to pastors who powerfully communicate the need to go to the unreached peoples of the world and to count the cost. Pastors like John Piper, who has woven this call into his numerous sermons and conference messages and books, and through whom many have received the call of God to go onto the mission field. Or we could turn to national missions conferences, like the Urbana Conference, a conference developed in partnership with InterVarsity Fellowship, Christian colleges, and key missiologists to reinforce God's call to service and missions every three years for tens of thousands of college students. A conference that I had the honor of attending when I was a college student, though I was interested in missions, I was also interested in a young lady who was also attending the conference. (laughs) Or we might put our hope in missions movements, like the student volunteer movement, which began in 1886 and inspired 100,000 students 
to volunteer to serve in missions over a 12-year span. Or we might put our chips on missionary training and sending agencies, agencies that are dedicated to finding and mobilizing and training and supporting missionaries around the globe. Or we could point to mission strategies, strategies like aiming at the 1040 window or defining and identifying and sending missionaries to the unreached people groups of the world. These are just some of the ways the modern church has answered the question, how will the gospel get to the ends of the earth? And by God's grace, God has undoubtedly used each of these means to bring people to himself around the globe. But are any better than others? Are some more worthy of our time and energy than others? Or is there anything missing from this list? This question of how we will get the gospel to the ends of the earth is the question we need to have in our minds this morning. It is the question Luke is addressing in our passage for today. And as I said before, it is a question that ought to occupy the regular thoughts and desires of every Christian. For when Jesus said to his disciples at the end of Matthew's gospel, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded of you. He was not just speaking to his twelve disciples, to those who were present, but to the church as a whole. This was not only their commission back then, but it is the commission that is upon the shoulders of everyone who goes by the name of Christian today. So how are we going to fulfill it? Let's turn now to Acts and see how the Lord initiated the fulfillment in the early church. And before we do, two quick points. The first, or two quick words, the first is that the points in your bulletin for today's message, uh, they flow one into another to form an answer to our question, which means taken individually, they lack a certain grammatical completeness in and of themselves. And my apologies to whoever that may be tormenting right now. <laughs> Second, um, the Apostle Paul, as we commonly know him, is referred to as Saul throughout our passage. This is probably because he was still going by the Hebrew form of his name, Saul, and it is actually in next week's passage that we see him starting to be called Paul as he takes on the Greek form of his name as he goes out among the Gentiles. So today, he is Saul, in case you're wondering who I'm talking about. So let's begin when a local church, point number one. Our passage begins by saying, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. One of the first things we ought to see when we study how God initiates the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth is that he does so through a local church. The church in Antioch was the first Gentile church recorded by Luke, and we know it had been founded a few years prior to our passage. We know this because of what we read back in Acts chapter 11, where we see that this church began as the result of the persecution of Christians that arose at the time of Stephen's martyrdom. 
back in chapter 7. A persecution that caused Christians to scatter out into the world. Some of whom we read came to Antioch and preached about Jesus there. We know that this church was strengthened by Barnabas, who was sent to them from the Jerusalem church, and by Saul, who Barnabas went to find in Tarsus to help him in this work. It was this local church that had been discipled and taught by Barnabas and Saul for a year, Luke tells us. And in that brief year, they developed a heart for the needs of other Christians. A sign of their quickly growing spiritual maturity. Causing them at the end of the year to send Barnabas and Saul back to Jerusalem to deliver the funds that this church had collected in order to provide relief during the famine in Judea to the church in Jerusalem. It is to this church and from this relief mission that Barnabas and Saul are returning in the final verse of chapter 12. And the first thing Luke tells us about this church in chapter 13 is that it had added men to its leadership team since we first heard about it in chapter 11. Apparently, Barnabas and Saul had been busy busy doing what all pastors ought to be doing, raising up leaders and working themselves out of a job. To Barnabas and Saul, the church has added three more leaders, and each of these names tells us something important about this church. These names tell us that the leadership of this church was quite diverse from its beginning days. For Barnabas, as we already know from earlier in Acts, was a Jewish Levite from the island of Cyprus, and Saul, a former Pharisee from Tarsus. Both would have been well-versed in the Jewish law and Jewish customs, while also being well-acquainted with Greek culture and customs. To them are added Simeon, whose nickname was Niger, a nickname which means black, and it tells us that he was a man of dark skin, most likely having come from Africa. Lucius was a Latin name indicating he was raised in the Roman culture, but it says he was from Cyrene a town in northern Africa. In fact, Lucius may have been one of these first people to come to Antioch and share the gospel because we learn in chapter 11 that it was men from Cyprus and Cyrene who first came with the gospel to Antioch. And Menaean, Luke tells us, was a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. How's that for a claim to fame? Herod the Tetrarch, this is the son of Herod the Great, This is the Herod who beheaded John the Baptist and sent Jesus back to Pilate in the midst of Jesus' trial, meaning he was probably a Jewish man, not talking about Herod, talking about Menaean, was probably a Jewish man from the uppermost class of society, having been raised in the courts alongside Herod the Tetrarch. Just this brief mention of these three men, in addition to Barnabas and Saul, tells us that there was a diversity present in this early church that spanned cultures and countries of origin and religious upbringings and skin color and economic class. This diversity would have clearly put on display the truth that the church of Jesus Christ is for all people, from all nations and all backgrounds making this church the perfect launching ground for the first missionaries to take the gospel to the nations and to the ends of the earth. 
And while we could and should reflect on what the diversity in this early church means for our own church, the point I most want us to see this morning is the simple truth that God began the process of bringing the gospel to the nations through one local church. Not primarily through a council of church leaders or a movement among young believers or the strategizing of the apostles, but through a group of young believers gathered in a young church in the city of Antioch. And what Luke tells us about this local church, aside from the fact that they were diverse in their leadership, is that they had a holy hunger for God. Moving on to our second point, we read verse 2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, this Holy Spirit spoke. Luke tells us here that this church had set aside time to come together to worship God while also fasting. Fasting is a practice where one abstains from food. It is important that we understand that the practice of fasting in the Christian church is never done to earn anything from God but rather to emphasize one's need to hear from him. It is, as John Piper says, the exclamation mark at the end of the sentence, we need you, God. And it is the mark of a church that has a holy hunger for God to show up. Now, we don't know if the church in Antioch was fasting to hear an answer to a particular question or simply longing for a deeper relationship with the Lord. But I don't think it is unlikely that they were fasting to express their longing for the Lord to reveal how how they, this young and diverse church made up mostly of Gentiles, might participate in the spread of God's kingdom to the nations. Whatever their intent, it was while they were worshiping and fasting that they heard from God a point that should not go unnoticed. Moving into point number three, we read in verse two, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Once again, we aren't given any details as to how they heard from God. We only know that they heard from God. It could be that while they were worshiping, one from among them heard an audible voice Say, set apart from me, Barnabas and Saul. And they they stood up to the congregation and they delivered what God had told them. It could be that one from among them spoke up and said, I've been praying about our future as a church and how we could reach even more people with Christ. And as I've been praying, I just can't shake this idea that we need to send Barnabas and Saul. And then heads started nodding around the circle and others said, I've had that same sense. Or perhaps Ananias. You remember Ananias is the one who God sent to Saul to remove the scales from his eyes. Perhaps Ananias shared with Saul how the Lord had told him that Saul was to be his chosen instrument to carry Christ's name to the Gentiles. And Saul had entrusted this prophecy to this local church and the Lord was impressing upon them now that this was the time to send Paul or Saul and Barnabas out to fulfill this word. However the word was received, the point stands that stands out here is that it was the church to whom the word was given. God didn't come to Barnabas or to Saul 
and say, get up and get going. Now is the time to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. He came to the church. And that while they were gathered in worship and fasting. It was then, as the church was expressing their holy hunger to hear from God, that the Holy Spirit showed up and spoke. And what the Holy Spirit told this young church, this first recorded Gentile church in the ancient world, this diverse church located 300 miles away from the Jerusalem epicenter of the Jesus movement, was that it was time for them, for them to commission their best men to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. Moving into point number four, we read in verse three of our passage, then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. You'll notice that the church, having received word from the Lord, is said to have fasted and prayed even more before laying hands on Barnabas and Saul and sending them off. To me, this communicates that this is a church that values the gift of discernment. They were a church that tested the spirits, as John tells us to do in 1 John 4. And it may have also been that they were a church who, having received word about Barnabas and Saul, whose holy hunger for direction was now turning to a holy hunger for protection and success and blessing on those whom God has called out on mission. Now, I've used the word commission in the title of this point, to commission their best, because the word translated in our ESV Bible as sent them off has a fuller meaning to it than what we think of when we say we send someone off. When we send someone off, we shove them in the back of an Uber or drop them at the doors of the terminal. And while we may turn and wave at them and see them drive down the street or walk into the airport, once they're out of sight, we head back to our home and carry on whatever it was we were doing before they arrived. But the word Luke uses here is a word that carries with it not only the idea of sending away, but also the idea of setting free. Thus, some translations and some commentators have argued that it would be better here to say that the church let Barnabas and Saul go rather than sent them off. And I believe that the sense of what is happening in the Antioch church here is captured all the more when we see that the very next verse tells us that it was the Holy Spirit who had sent Barnabas and Saul out. And then we add to this The fact that when Barnabas and Saul return in chapter 14 to the church of Antioch after their first missionary journey, Luke tells us that they were returning to Antioch where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. They had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. So if we were to properly understand what is happening in verse 3... I think we need to take all of this into account and say that while the church was sending off Barnabas and Saul, it was also, and in a deeper sense, the Holy Spirit that was sending them off. And thus the church's sending was more of a letting go, of a setting free. But not like we let go of a bird or we let go of a fish. 
to find its own way in the far-reaching expanses of the sky or the sea, but like we let go a child on their first day of kindergarten, out of our watchful care, but into the watchful care of another, always keeping them in mind throughout the day and praying for them and eagerly looking forward to seeing them again to hear how their day went. So also the church was letting go of Barnabas and Saul, letting go of them so that they might go out from them and into the mission that God had called them on while eagerly awaiting any word of their progress and a report upon their return and entrusting them to God to lead them and empower them and care for them and use them for his glory. And I dare say that that is what we aim to do here at Grace Church as we call people up to this platform and commission them to the mission field. That is what I mean when I use the word commissioning here. And there is no doubt that in commissioning these two to God's calling, the church in Antioch was sending out their very best. For the earliest testimonies about Barnabas and the stories to come about Saul, later to be Paul, serve to confirm this. We know from what we've seen in Luke already that Barnabas had already shown himself to be a man of generosity, selling a field and giving the proceeds to this young movement. And that he was a man who, the text tells us, was living up to his name, a name which means son of encouragement. We also know he was a man of courage, for he was the first of the disciples to accept Saul, the man who had been ravaging the church when Saul was converted. None of the other disciples wanted anything to do with him. They were afraid of him. And yet Barnabas is the one who accepted him and took him to the apostles. We also know that Barnabas was recognized for his leadership, for the church in Jerusalem chose him to be sent to Antioch. And we know from Luke that when he got to Antioch that he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit, and who was responsible for establishing this young church, and he didn't do so proudly, building the church upon his own back, but he quickly identified the need for help. And so he goes to Tarsus, and he finds Saul and brings him in so that the church might be established. That is what we know about Barnabas, truly one of the best in their church. And as for Saul, he's regarded by many to be the single greatest missionary in the history of the church. And if you don't know of his gift for the work of the kingdom, I just encourage you to keep coming back in our series in Acts, and you will hear about it. Or to read his letters recorded in the New Testament, and you will see how the Lord has powerfully used him to build up the ancient church and how his words through the Holy Spirit wrote through him are continuing to build up our own church today. And speaking of the rest of Acts and indeed the rest of the Bible, what we come to see as we read and study God's word is that this moment, this calling out and setting apart and commissioning of Barnabas and Saul was a watershed moment in the mission of God. The mission of bringing the gospel to the ends of the earth. The mission of bringing people in from every tongue and tribe and nation so that they might be saved. Which brings us to the fifth point. It is important for us to understand that while this was a key moment in the spread of the gospel, this is not the beginning of God's mission to bring all nations into his kingdom. 
It is not as if God spent most of the Bible caring about the chosen people of Israel, only to decide later on that he would invite others into his kingdom as well. The mission of God throughout Scripture has been to make himself known. To make himself known and to save and redeem and garner worship from all of his creatures, even to the ends of the earth. We see this mission on display from some of the earliest chapters in the Bible, where in Genesis 12, 3, God tells Abraham that it would be through him that all the families of the earth would be blessed. And later on, we read in the prophet Isaiah that God says he will make Israel a light for the nations, that his salvation might reach to the ends of the earth, the very words that Jesus uses in Acts 1.8. Or in Psalm 67.5, we read that God would, or the psalmist declares that the people ought to praise God. Let the people praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. It's a call for all nations to worship the Lord. Or in John 12, 32, where Jesus proclaims, I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. So when we read Acts 13 and we hear the Holy Spirit tell the church in Antioch to set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them, we can be sure that the work to which Barnabas and Saul are being called is the mission, is God's mission, to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. And the same is true for anyone who is sent out into cross-cultural missions. They are being, being sent out not on their own mission, but on God's. And yet, as we have seen in our passage today, God has chosen to accomplish his mission through the sending of missionaries to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. And with that, we, we step back from our passage and we look at it as a whole. And as we do, we see that Luke's answer to this question, the question, how will the gospel go to the ends of the earth, is that it goes when a local church has a holy hunger and they hear God's call to commission their best. That is how God's gospel began its journey to the ends of the earth. That's what Luke is teaching us through our passage today. But now begins the hard work for those of us who hold this book in our hands 2,000 years later. Because it is evident from the scores of unreached people in the world that the work of bringing the gospel to the ends of the earth is not complete. And this unfinished work is the responsibility of none other than the church of Jesus Christ with the help of the Holy Spirit to see to completion. I've always appreciated the quote that said, God's plan to save a lost and dying world, rather it says, God's plan A to save the lost and dying world is the church, and there is no plan B. It is the work that every Christian has been commissioned to, and as such, it is the work that every church ought to have, a holy hunger to see to completion. This much is clear, but what isn't always clear is the method by which we are to continue this work today, so that is what I would like to spend the final portion of our time together discussing. So how are we to participate today in the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth? Let us look at a few ways. First, we participate 
and the spreading of the gospel to the ends of the earth by realizing that this task belongs to all of us. Now, I'm not saying that each and every one of us must go into cross-cultural missions, but rather that missions is for all of us. Romans 10, 14 to 15 is where Paul asks a series of illuminating questions on this topic when he says, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? By God's design, the gospel goes to the ends of the earth through missionaries who preach the gospel so that the lost might hear of Jesus and believe in his name. But in order for missionaries to go, we must take to heart that very last question. How will they go unless they are sent? What scripture calls us to be as Christians are either goers or senders. Both are necessary. Both are impossible without the other. And both require a strong conviction that the taking of the gospel to the ends of the earth belongs to each and every one of us. So what is your pulse when it comes to seeing God's gospel reach the nations? Do you consider this task to be your task? Do you see yourself as being commissioned by the Lord Jesus himself to participate in the work of making disciples of every people from every tongue, tribe, and nation? Or have you come to believe that such work belongs to others, to missionaries and sending agencies and missions conferences, and that your work in God's mission is elsewhere? If so, we need to work on correcting this, for God only has one mission. It is the mission of which we ourselves are beneficiaries. We are members of God's kingdom because someone was not satisfied with keeping the gospel to themselves. And so we also must not be satisfied. We must see ourselves either as a sender or as a goer, and those can change throughout your life. But all the while, we must be committed to bringing the gospel to the nations. Second, we must participate in this mission today by having a holy hunger for God to use us to accomplish this mission. By a holy hunger here, I'm referring to the example set forth for us by this small church in Antioch. The example of fasting as they worshipped and prayed. Very few things are important enough for us to cause us to miss eating a meal. And yet we see in our passage today that it is while the church was worshiping and fasting that God spoke to them and the first missionaries were sent out. Now, as we study the book of Acts, we are always asking the question, is this prescriptive or is this descriptive? Is this the only way that we will hear from God or is it a description of how God moved at one point in time? I would argue that this is descriptive. It is not prescriptive in the sense that we won't hear from God in other ways. Oh, but it is a sweet example. And it is a tool that God has given us so that we might devoid ourselves of those things that distract us and keep us away from him and helps us to earnestly seek him 
as we abstain from food, not only abstaining from food, but abstaining from food together in common heart desire to have God move, to have God call us up into his mission, to have God raise up missionaries from within us so that we might send them out just as the Antioch church sent out Barnabas and Saul. If we are to participate in God's mission, we are to do so not first by joining a committee or by attending a conference or by developing a new strategy, but by skipping a meal, by gathering with other believers, by crying out, God, show us the way. Show us how we can be used on your great mission. Well, third and finally, we participate in this mission by seeing, being, uh, seeing, we participate in this mission by seeing and committing ourselves to the role of the local church in the accomplishment of God's mission to reach the nations, the role of the local church. At the beginning of this message, we explored ways that we've seen the gospel go out to the nations in the modern era, and I asked the question, is anything missing from this list? I wonder how many of us picked up on the fact that what was missing from that list that included evangelists and conferences, pastors and movements, sending agencies and strategies was any mention of the local church. If I were to have you see one thing from this morning's message, it would be the way that God uses a local church to launch the world-altering mission of bringing the gospel to the nations. This is an observation that is oftentimes overlooked in our day and age of missions agencies and mission strategies and missions movements. With so many efforts being made to reach the lost, efforts for which we should be profoundly thankful, we must fight to not lose the central role that the church, the local church, plays in bringing God's gospel to the ends of the earth. I believe there are a few ways that the local church, the role of the local church in missions can be lost. One way is that we can come to see the missionary call too individualistically. That is to say, we come to believe that when God needs someone, he'll tell them, and then they can go. It's between them and God, and the local church is lost in the process. But is that what we see in Antioch? No, God spoke not to Barnabas and to Saul, but to the church. It wasn't in answer to Barnabas and Saul's holy hunger, but in response to the holy hunger of the regular members of the local church. And God didn't just tell Barnabas and Saul to go. Rather, he told the church to send them. These are important things that we must observe and note. So today, missions ought to be a community project, one that is on all of our hearts such that the hungering and the hearing and the calling and the setting apart and the sending are discerned within the local church community, not simply on one's own. Another way the role of the local church in mission can be lost is by misunderstanding the purpose of missions agencies. Missions agencies are to be para-church organizations. 
That is, they are to come alongside the church and help her in completing her work. But too often they get out in front of the church. People come to think that these agencies are really the ones responsible for the work of missions. So for the one who feels called to missions, the first step is not to meet with their local church leaders, or their small group, or to pray with those members of their church, but to find an agency that will send them, and they can hop from one to the next until they find someone who's willing to sign on the dotted line and take them on. One of the reasons this happens, sadly, is that those who feel called to missions aren't even members of a local church. They don't have a church community in the first place. Now, there's a problem with that. The ultimate aim of missionaries ought to be to go and reproduce what in a foreign land? The local church. And yet we think that we can go out and do that without the wisdom and discernment and guidance and backing and calling and fasting and praying and sending of our own local body. So we must understand that while missions agencies are a wonderful tool for mobilizing and sending and supporting missionaries, they ought to be engaged only after engaging with one's local church And then the work is not done. They are to support the work of the local church in supporting their missionaries. So to put it bluntly, don't go to Dave Patty to discern your calling to missions. Go to your elders, your pastors, your small group leaders here at Grace Church. Now I say that somewhat jokingly. If you know Dave Patty as a dear friend, he would be a great guy to talk, talk to you through those things. But he is not your pastor. Your pastors are your pastors. Your elders are your elders. It's convictions such as these that has led us to write these words in our church constitution under our global outreach policy. There you will read, financial support will be limited to those persons, programs, ministries, or mission agencies that are substantially in agreement with our doctrinal statement, positions and policies, as well as our strong views concerning the authority of and accountability to the local church. But it is one thing for us to write this in our constitution, and it's another thing for us to live by it. And in order for us to live by this conviction, that it is the role first and foremost of the local church to engage in and accomplish the work of missions, then it must, It must permeate not only your pastoral team, not only your elders, but your own heart. We will not see God use us in this way until we become a church that longs to see his mission completed, each and every one of us. So it is up to each of us to see that the way the gospel will go to the ends of the earth is through a local church that has a holy hunger to hear from God and then is willing to commission their best. Only then will God's gospel go to the ends of the earth. Let us pray that God would give us this heart and so use us to accomplish his mission.
as I pray with those who are serving communion, join me at the front. Well, Lord, we are thankful that you have given us this word for this morning, that you have laid it as the word that we would get to study, that I would get to teach. Lord, it feels in some ways like a David and Goliath story, how how you have chosen in your sovereignty to use the first Gentile church, a young church, a small local church, to launch the missionary movement to the ends of the earth. Lord, may it bolster our souls and our confidence, not in ourselves, but in the God who hears and responds to local church congregations who hunger to hear from you, who hunger to be used from you, by you, who hunger to see your mission accomplished. Lord, give us that hunger. And so use us in the building up of your kingdom, even to the ends of the earth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.